All right, so welcome to the second Paranormal Inc. podcast. This is Rich. This is Mike. And we are actually recording this podcast live from the haunted Ernestine and Hazel's in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. So as a sidebar, a bit of fun you can do is once you're actually done listening to this podcast, you can kind of go back and listen to the recording for any possible EVPs. We have actually done little investigations at Ernestine Hazel's and walked away with some interesting EVPs ourselves. And you can see those investigations on our website at paranormalincorporated.com. So what are we going to talk about this week, Mike? Uh, I think you brought up the point of starting off with your newest book, Devil in the Delta. Kind of touching base on some of that between the realism of an actual investigation and some of the hype and glamour you may see in a lot of the other books. Well, and and, and really on TV too. Exactly. I mean, the uh, some of the early criticisms that I've seen online of the Devil in the Delta have been like that the book isn't scary enough. And what I wanted to actually point out in this podcast um, is that this was not intended to be like a horror book. <laughs> Instead. It was really written as more of a uh, realistic ghost hunt, and what you what you really have to deal with when you go to somebody's house and you have to deal with people who think they have a ghost, or even worse, like in the case of this book, they think there's an actual demon or something in their double wide trailer, <laughs> and just kind of what you have to deal with in that situation. And a, a so-called possession, right? So. You know, it's, it's just, you know, and so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, this, this book is called Devil in the Delta. It is for sale right now. You can actually get it on Amazon, ignore the reviews, and uh, at least the bad ones. Yeah. And uh, Barnes and & Noble and that kind of thing. Um, so what are some of the obvious differences between a real-life ghost hunt and some what I would call a produced ghost hunt, which is kind of like, one of these television shows, say, working with a producer there who, you know, is trying to get a very definite set of results. Exactly. I mean, you can start off uh, in a real ghost hunt. You're going to be sitting there maybe for hours on end and nothing is going to happen. You're watching a 30-minute episode of a TV show and it just seems like, my God, it's nonstop haunting. That's not the case in real life. I mean, you may sit in a house for six or seven hours not hear a thing and later discover that yeah maybe stuff was going on all around you that's where review comes in yeah i think i can't i think the uh the boring side of it really doesn't come out a lot of times yeah. on tv or even in books and um, i think a lot of new uh thrill seeker type ghost hunters are really sort of knocked in the dirt quick when they realize oh crap you know this is actually kind of boring sitting here for nine straight hours um, mm -hmm. asking questions into thin air and possibly getting no answers and that sort of thing. Yeah. I don't know how many times we've finished an investigation, walked out of there scratching our heads going, I don't know what these people were talking about. I mean, nothing happened. And then upon later review, we're like, oh, crap. It's like, my God, I've got 15 really good EVPs. Stuff was actually happening. Yeah. And another thing, too, is, you know, again, because you EVPs are always found, you know, after the fact, that, you know, a, a lot of investigations, it really seems like you leave with nothing. So, I mean, when you watch, like, some of these shows and they're just all walking around going, you know, I think we got something and this sort of thing. Honestly, that, I mean, every once in a while you get a place like that where something happens live and you can kind of walk away with a good feeling. Um, but most of the time you kind of walk away, you know, completely unsure if you got anything at all. You just basically have to consider yourself lucky where you're at a location doing an investigation and something actually happens live. It doesn't happen that much, trust me. Right. So, you know, as you're listening to our ambient background noises of cars and jukebox <laughs> and police sirens and things like that, um, we're going to go into a little bit more about some of the ambiguity, too. With You know, one of the big points that comes up in the book is uh, when this particular client, um, who I call the Martins, that's their anonymous name. They're, I guess you'd say, their alias. Yeah. Um, some of the ambiguity, because, I mean, there's obvious in the book that there was some drug use going on. It's obvious that she was not completely of total sound mind. Um, she was a little bit of an isolationist in the middle of nowhere, so she wasn't a very social person. Some of their, uh, how you would say, maybe off-cue practices 
as far as like Ouija board and just leaning more towards the occult. And they, you know, weren't really forthcoming with that either. Yeah, and this is one of the things that you will find out when you do a lot of private cases is, I mean, they're so eager for, a lot of times, honestly, they're so eager for you to come tell them that they're haunted, which, you know, you think it would be the opposite. You think you would go to a lot of private cases and they want you to sort of tell them, okay, you're not haunted and this is what's going on. They can feel better, but the reality is, usually these these people want you to, to like, tell them they're haunted and, like, give them evidence. Yeah, a lot of times, too, there's ulterior motives behind it. Yeah, they're... Is it, I mean, it's, it's a lucrative business. I mean, paranormal tourism is kind of, people are cashing in on it. And it almost seems like there's a little bit of a psychological thing about attention. Yeah. You know, it's like if you kind of live in the middle of nowhere and you get no attention, you know, maybe some ghosts are giving me, you know, some attention here or something. And plus you've got all these ghost hunters who are suddenly interested in you that are coming over to your right. house and, you know, spending time with you and you're the center of attention at your house, that sort of thing. It's pretty amazing, actually. Like some of the ambiguity involved with some of the cases because you get in there and you wonder just how much of it is wishful thinking and how much of it's nonsense. And so, anyway, the point being so, getting back to ambiguity, I mean, you do have just moments where, I mean, there's just so much going on in the house with wishful thinking, and you wonder how much of the stories are just nonsense and how much are fabricated and how much, you know, it's actually real things happening there. And, and that's kind of really where. I think Devil in the Delta was going, you know, to show some of that. Kind of get in and dissect it, separate what's fact and what's fiction, you know, what's made up. Kind of like some flavor. Kind of make the story a little bit more interesting, get your attention. Right, exactly. And another thing, you know, you see a little bit of this in, in, the, in the TV show stuff, you know, with Ghost Hunters. Um, in real life, there's much more that you are needed as far as resolution. I mean, if someone's calling you all the way down to their house and you're in there working and gathering evidence or, or lack of thereof and all that kind of stuff, eventually they're going to, you know, say, you know, well, am I haunted or not? Exactly. And they're going to expect a real explanation. They're going to want validation. Yeah, they're going to want you to say, okay, here's my proof. and and But then the biggest thing of all is they're going to be, you know, like, well, now what are you going to do about it? <laughs> right. Yeah, but, you know, what can you do about it? Well, right. I mean, see, but on the TV shows, you know, they kind of shake hands and show them something, and then they're out the door and they're right. gone. Whereas in real life, they're like, okay, now what? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so... You know, that's that's one of the points, you know, also, you know, we kind of go over in the book, and there's some difficulty in there with, you know, trying to get a clergyman to actually come out and do a blessing because they actually thought that would make them feel better and that sort of thing. And But resolution and solving the problem or helping at least alleviate the problem is something that's, you know, important in real life but is rarely ever talked about on a TV show. It's just peace of mind. Right. It's like, well, you know... They told us to do this, and they've dealt with this, you know, a thousand times, so it must work. And a lot of times it will because it's mind over matter. Exactly. All right, so if you want to read more about The Devil in the Delta, you can grab that book, and I'm not going to dive into the details on it, but if you just kind of want a taste of it, also go to our website, again, paranormalincorporated.com, all spelled out. There's actually an article on there about the Martin case, as well as some of the evidence on there that's referenced to the book, and that might prime you up to maybe want to read the book. All right. So since this podcast, I guess basically the, the raw subject would be, you know, what's actually takes place with real ghost hunts, um, maybe we should talk about some of the things that should happen on real ghost hunts and maybe some of the things that you don't need or necessarily doesn't have to happen. Right. And the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, from doing ghost hunts with ourselves and also with other people, is sort of like talk about like team size. Exactly. So many teams out there, when they first get together, they immediately think the more members we have, the better and more serious we're going to be taken, which is not the case. It's detriment detrimental to an investigation actually to go in with fifteen people rather than three. I mean, you're looking at so much background noise, so much that you just can't decipher. And getting everybody to shut up at the same time to actually get some clean audio or video is just damn near impossible. 
And and he's right. I mean, there's always it seems to be sort of a little bit of a pissing contest with groups. You know, who has the most members? Mm-hmm. And I've actually seen like paranormal groups do recruitment drives. I mean, they'll actually mm-hmm. put on their website, "We're recruiting," and it's like we we we're constantly turning people away because we know that we want to have just a couple three people that we trust one hundred percent. That's another thing too is you have to trust everyone that's ghost hunting explicitly. If they come exactly. to you and say, "Hey, I just saw an apparition in the next room." You can't sit and think to yourself, okay, did they really see this, or are they lying? Is he just wanting to feel important or, you know, be a part of the group, bring something to the table? It's like, you want to bring something to the table, that's fine, but make sure that it's legitimate. Right, and I mean, and if you don't know the, if you just recruited someone off of Facebook, you don't know that person. Right. I mean, you don't know that you can trust them carrying around your gear and not saying they lost it and they stuck it in their pocket. Hmm. You can't trust that person to tell the truth. You you, you don't know how that person works. I mean, well, and you don't know what they're going to do in somebody's house. You don't know if they're going to walk out with something. Right. So, you I know, mean, all that does is shine a bad light on your group. That's it. And I mean, I think it's just in the end, you know, having a core couple, three people that you trust, you know, explicitly that you can, you know, take at their word. And you can maintain discipline when you're doing an investigation. It's mm-hmm. way more important than saying, oh, our group has 48 people in it, and we're scattered on three states with two chapters, and oh, my gosh. And point, well, a good example is there's officially three members in our group, all guys. So, I mean, if we go to an investigation saying we get some EVPs that are female voices, we know right off the bat it's not us. And like I said, we're three members, and I can compare our group to some friends of ours that have large groups, you know, 20, 30 members, and we have hands down got better evidence. It's not because we're better investigators. It's just, I mean, we don't have all the background noise. Well, right. We know where everybody is in our group. We're usually all together unless somebody's manning a piece of equipment. Yeah, and we and and we have taken you know other people with us here and there on investigations, male and female investigators, and and they're people that we know well enough that when we're listening to audio, we know their voices. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, when you're sitting in a room with a set of headphones, going over six hours of audio, you want to know the voices that were with you. I mean, otherwise, it's going to make hell trying to figure out right. you know, if something is an EVP or if it's not or if it's. One of these random members two rooms away talking right. or... And at that point, too, when we do take somebody with us, we're not sending them out on their own. Usually somebody from our group is with them. So we know if we catch something and they're in the room, one of us is actually with them. Exactly. So, I mean, we can distinguish between the conversation that we're actually having maybe with that person. If we hear a voice that's kind of out of place, we know who it is. And sort of right along with member envy i guess we'll call it yeah is uh gear envy because i mean you know hand in hand with that you know you also seem you can go out sometimes and we've been guilty of this especially when we first started paranormal inc um just overblowing how much equipment that you have and i mean you walk into an investigation you're carrying 10 cases of gear you know and a computer and a workstation and god forbid you're actually carrying a dvr DVR system system, around with multiple cameras we we started out, we used that on one investigation, quickly figured out you don't need it. I mean, it's it's useless. Well, we figured out it was so much easier to use portable camcorders exactly. than it was to set up a whole DVR you system that's locked. You set up a stationary mini DV in a room and get the same effect nine times out of ten better than you can with the DVR system. That's it. Wow. That was not an EVP. That was car hawking. <laughs> Again, that's that's actually one of our famous Memphis trolleys. Hi, Memphis trolley. There it is. Um, If you come to Memphis uh, and you come to Ernestine and Hazel's, you'll see the trolley going out front. It's one of the big tourist attractions here. Hey, it's adding to the ambiance of the uh, the podcast here. This this is a Memphis podcast, so we're we're just bringing some Memphis sounds. Exactly. (laughs) Kind of spices it up. I know, me personally, I don't just like to sit and hear two dry voices with nothing in the background so hopefully you like it right so you get to hear trolleys possibly an EVP or something and girls giggling in the back that you probably heard a minute ago <laughs> that was not an EVP by the way if you no. heard a female talking and that was actually a, another customer in yeah. Ernestine 
Back to the gear. Right. Okay, uh, so, yeah, so you walk in with, like, shitloads of cases of gear, and it's just like, okay, we're we're in gear overload here. Yeah. And I think it's taken us a couple of years to sort of whittle away the stuff that we finally figured out, okay, look, we never use this, just let's leave this. We never use this, let's leave this. So let's let's talk about some of the gear that we do actually use. So what would be right. probably the most used piece of gear? Most used piece of gear that we carry is definitely audio, digital recorders. Absolutely. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, I've seen people who actually have cases full of audio recorders. And I honestly, I, I think you need two. Now, I mean, three would be handy. But honestly, if you all had only two good audio recorders, and when I, when I say good, I mean basically it has a good microphone on it. Uh, it, it can record for extended periods of time. And it's USB, so you can plug it right into your computer to, to drag off the sound mm-hmm. file. Uh, if you have two recorders that can do that, that's you can get by with that. I mean, yeah. that, that gives you a recorder to put, you know, around the house and leave, and one to carry with you as you investigate. You know, yeah, and I mean, that's going back to us being guilty of overload. Uh, just between me and Richard, my God, we've probably got seven or eight, you know, decent recorders. But we might take four on an investigation and use them just for what Rich said. You know, set one in a room, carry one with us. I can definitely say I use two recorders. That's all I ever take. I've got basically the recorder we're recording this podcast on, which is a Zoom H2. It's my sit it in a room and leave it recorder. And then I have a smaller Sony IC recorder that I carry around with me. And that's pretty much what... I can at least say for maybe the last 18 months to two years, that's that's pretty much been what I've used, two recorders. And I, basically I'm going with the H2, which I mean, they are awesome. I mean, I, I will plug them on that. The recording quality is out of this world. And I recently purchased the H1, which I carry with me. I mean, it's the same thing. It's an awesome recorder. But two recorders, that's it. Okay, so... What would be the second probable most used piece of gear? Honestly, that we use is probably going to be going down to the digital camera. Yeah, I would say either that or an or EMF detector. Because yeah, those, EMF those detector. pretty much. Um, but let's talk about the digital camera. So um, but we're, you're talking more of a digital still camera. Exactly. Okay. Well, and here's the thing about a digital still camera. Um, they are definitely needed. Um I will go ahead and say Mike and I are fortunate enough that we actually found older Sony still cameras that have night shot on them, yeah, which are very the, hard uh, to find. DSC V1 is the number on it. It's a Sony DSC V1, and it's an all-around good camera. They take really good video, so I mean you can use it for that. The audio on them is actually really good, and the night shot capability, if you put an external, just a small external IR light on it, they rock. Yeah, I mean, they, they function basically just like a Sony night shot camcorder, only it's a still camera. You can uh, go around and take still photos, and it does have video capabilities. Or not, it's not as good as a camcorder. Right. And I think it's actually limited to maybe three-minute clips or something like that. Uh, but you can take a short video with it, um, and it has the same night vision quality as the still photos do with it. And the problem is going to be, you know, is finding one because they quit kind of making the night shot still cameras a few years ago. And they're getting harder and harder to find now that ghost hunters are starting to figure them out. But keep in mind that a lot of the camcorders that have night shots let you take still photos too. You can actually run it like a video camera, but then when you want to take a still photo, you can just snap the photo and, and take a still photo right there in the camcorder. So whether you go the camcorder route taking stills or the still camera route taking video clips, I think being able to take still photos for sure uh, is a must. It's, it's just it's a good idea to have one of each. I mean, you don't have to go crazy. You don't need two or three, you know, mini DVs or digital video recorders. You know, if you add one decent one, that's all you need. Yeah, and I think, you know, in the, usually in my bag, I have one camcorder and one still camera. Um, 
And I think even when we go on bigger ghost hunts, I usually take two camcorders and he takes two camcorders. So we're usually somewhere between two and four video devices running. Uh, not including, you know, the still cameras that we have in our hands that can also take clips. Right. So that's probably the biggest expense. I mean, because like, getting night shot camcorders anymore, uh, you know, is anywhere from three to $500. Yeah, um, so you can jump on Amazon and you can find pretty much all this stuff we're talking about pretty reasonable. The, yeah. The Sony night shot cameras, they're getting to be like hen's teeth. They were, they were abundant when I first bought mine i snagged two of them and i think i seen one the last time i was on amazon looking i mean people are snagging them up left and right yeah and i think we actually put a link on our website for an amazon store that we are basically we we just basically took all the gear that we like and we use and we lumped them into one little mini store so that ghost hunters could kind of go there and easily find them um which we probably need to go back and maybe update that store a little bit but I do think there's still a few of those cam those still cameras and camcorders are listed on there. Yeah, they are. So okay, so then the other piece of gear we, we touched on was the EMF detector. Um, this is another one of those kind of things where I think, like in the early days, I think I actually at one point had six EMF detectors. Man, you you had a fetish for EMF detectors, dude. Bat and flashlights. Yeah, I mean I, it's one of those kind of things you end up with like. Yeah, there's something about ghost hunters and flashlight fetish, though. I know. I mean, there is. I mean, you'll actually you got to have the latest flashlight that comes. <laughs> you can out. actually, you can actually have entire debates and conversations about it's a flashlights. Flashlight, for God's sakes! I mean, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it just seems like you know, you know. But I think right now we're actually using like military grade we flashlights are. that, yeah, were made for like troops in Iraq or something. But because they have an, an IR light on them, they're you know we can but, use them with I our mean, camcorders. They serve our purpose. I mean, we. It's. The turn of a knob, we can go from a regular flashlight to a red lenser, to a blue lenser, to a strobe, to IR. Right. All by just, you know, just turning a knob. Right. And it's got the adjustable head on it. I mean, you can angle it. You can set it. You can place it. You can do what you want with it. It's got a clip so you don't, you're hands-free. You can put it wherever. I can definitely say that we use the regular flashlight and the red lens part yeah. quite often. I can, I, uh, the infrared, it honestly, it's not so strong, but I think it's actually that handy. But no. um, I think if you have a good flashlight that you can also add a red cap to or a red, you know, a red, make it into a red light, you're probably as good as you need. Because um, you can actually use red light to assist your video camcorder and your not digital. Totally. Yeah, with, and it doesn't hurt your night vision on it. So that's, that's why it's important to have a, a red light that, on your flashlight. Um, but yeah, but me, that even goes back to one of the things we had talked about getting uh, another trolley. Another trolley. <laughs> Hello, people. One of the other things we had even talked about doing on certain investigations was just getting a red light bulb and putting in the room. Yeah, we've actually we we actually have the cheap little one bulb drop lights that you can hang from the ceiling. We have one of those on an extension cord that if a room is just particularly dark. And we need some additional light for the infrared for the camcorders and such. We can just hang that light. So the the other half of that conversation was EMF detectors. Then um, again, like there was like a little phase there where I had <laughs> I think like six or seven EMF detectors. And the reason is, is mainly because there are several different kinds. And so that's kind of like why this is a good piece of gear to talk about. There's a uh, analog emf detectors which either going to be like your gauss meter which is kind of cool because it does uh, micro gauss which is a really really sensitive portion of that scale i mean it's so sensitive you can actually pick up an electromagnetic field off of a human being exactly so you really have to be like careful using that i mean you almost have to be in a location that has no power no wiring because it will pick up every little even good wiring it will pick up uh, an EMF from that. But uh, the other type of uh, analog would be the really expensive ones, which would be like the uh, natural EMF, mm -hmm. uh, the tri-field EMF recorders. Yeah. I'd say you're, you're starting to get into three and $400 for a meter. Now you can find them cheaper than that, but I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. It really is, especially when the Gauss meter is like 30 or $40. I know. I mean, you can go online, or you can go to a store 
an electronics store and pick up a good digital or cell sensor for $25. Right. Which that brings us to that, the last two types. Um, the cell sensor is, is a really common cheap one. And that's because they were Basically, really... they were the first ones, I think. Yeah, you know, they were created with a specific intent of being able to read uh, EMFs that are leaking from cell phones, hence why they're called cell sensor. Right. Back then, the, the scare that cell phones gave you tumors. Right, which may be still scare or true. I guess, well, I guess this generation will find out. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see, like, in the next 20 years if everybody's walking around with big pumpkin heads. <laughs> there you go. Pumpkin head syndrome. <laughs> But the cell sensors basically function a lot like a, a digital counterpart, the K2. In fact, a lot of times we figured out over the years, if you take a, a cell sensor and hold it in your right hand, and you take a K2 meter, which is really popular and overpriced because of television popularity, right. um, you could put them one in each in the hand and go walk around, and they will give off the exact same readings. And uh, cell sensor is actually, in my opinion, better. Yeah, because usually a lot of them beep and light up to let yeah. you know what's I mean, going you, on. You've got three forms of notification. I mean, first, it's going to give you two visuals. You're going to get a reading, a numerical reading that tells you how high the EMF field is. You get another a visual, a red light will start flashing, and it's got an audible alarm that goes off. If anything's in the proximity, if you're not in the room, you hear that alarm. I mean, they're all around. It's a good package. Right, and because of that alarm, you can also just turn it on and leave it somewhere, go walk around, and it just kind of functions as, okay. as an alarm. Let you know, oh, something's going on in the living room. Let's mm -hmm. go on, let's haul butt back over there. So, again, you know, like, you know, and then you have the K2 meters like we just talked about. And then you have full-on digital EMF detectors, which basically have a digital readout that looks like a calculator and tells you what the, the electromagnetic field is in milligauss with an actual digital number on the screen. Right, switching to Tesla, which is useless. Right. So, I mean, so I mean, you got all of these to choose from. And once again, you know, if I'm going to a place where I'm basically carrying one little shoulder bag, which tends to be what I do these days, mm -hmm. uh, the two EMF detectors that usually end up in there is the one analog, which is the Gauss meter, and usually either a cell sensor or a K2, one of the two. Right. Well, I'll typically carry my cell sensor and my digital. I hardly ever use my K2 meter anymore. Yep. And see, in the K2s, I mean, like, again, they're so popular, they've, they've gone up to about $60 to buy. And you can pick up a cell sensor on Amazon or somewhere for about 25 bucks. Exactly. And, and like I said, and they're identically, as they're, they have the identical sensitivity. They typically give all, the same readings. They, they react the exact same way. To, to, an, to an EMF as each other. And the K2s, they've, they've tended to jump on the bandwagon. You can actually get those now with an audible alarm, but you're going to pay, you know, two times the money for that as you would getting a cell sensor. And I would, you know, just get the cell sensor. You could you could get the Ghost Meter brand cell sensor. Yeah, about 20, um, 25 bucks. And the Goss Meter for the price of the K2. Oh, yeah. And be covered on both sides, analog and digital. I bought my digital and uh, my cell sensor, I've, which mine's a, a true, real cell sensor. And I don't think I paid 50 bucks for both of them. Right. Which, I take that back, actually, the cell sensor's analog, too. The, digi the digital EMF detectors, Mike has one, you have one. And I, don't, I don't know that. How often do you actually use the digital? I, mean, I I use it on every investigation. I I usually I will use it for a sweep of an area when we first go in just to get a base reading. And I might set it up, but typically I will switch to if I have a stationary EMF, it's the cell sensor. Usually my digital is just for a sweep of a room just to get baseline readings. Right. Okay, so we basically said that the needed gear are cameras, audio recorders, EMF detectors and flashlights. Right. Uh, and really, I mean, couldn't you just, you could basically get by on a ghost something with this, right? <laughs> I mean, that's pretty you, much. You what could you legitimately use. get by even with less than that. I mean, but those are, I mean, if you were wanting a full pack, that's all you would need to buy. Yeah. I mean, you don't need to start branching out and get, well, 
you know, I watched an episode of such and such last week and they were using this, you know, I've got to get this. Oh, they had this right. awesome wireless DVR system. I've got to have that. And, you know, no, you don't. You don't. Right. You know, you're going to drop 900 to $1,500 for a really good DVR system, especially if you're wanting to go wireless on it. You're going to drop at least fuck 2000 and you don't need it. Yeah, you really don't. I mean, and, you're, and you'll appreciate the portability of your camcorders. If you, if you have two camcorders on a tripod that you can just pick up, carry to the next room, and drop back down again, yeah, you don't get easier than that. You, if you want to save the money, you get, go out and get a, a wired DVR system. The first time you want to move that and cover another room, you're going to wish you had never bought it because you got to deal with all the wires and cables and moving everything, then resetting it up. You've blown an hour of your investigating time just there, just doing that. Yeah, and that's and you probably tape the camera down. Exactly. And the cord may not even be long enough. I mean, mm-hmm. it may, usually they have a fifty foot, sometimes a hundred foot cable on them, and you'll be surprised how quickly that gets eaten up it's when you're going up. around doorways and upstairs it's and around corners. Something else that you have to be mindful of when you're doing your investigation, because if you forget about it, I mean, your foot catches that cable. Next thing you know, well. Your camera was completely useless. Right. And then, and to plug Devil and Delta again, at the end of the book, I, we actually were involved with a group that was using this sort of stuff, like the, the big group mentality. And I kind of talk a little bit about some of the ridiculousness of that little fiasco. But, okay, so I know a lot of people are probably listening to this and going, hey, but they didn't talk about this piece of gear. So let's we're going to specifically mention now some of the gear that I would definitely put in the category of optional but not necessary. Right. And the first one that comes straight into my mind is the digital thermometer. Um, Useless. It really is. I mean, I, I, I was so quick to, bam, drop the $75 to buy one of the, the laser mm-hmm. digital thermometers. You know, it can, t- it can measure ambient temperature, or you can switch it to a laser, point the laser at something, and take a reading. And quite frankly, it's useless. It is, because... I don't care how well insulated a place is, the temperature in a room is not going to be consistent throughout the entire room. You're going to get different readings. It's going to happen. Well, and the, the big thing of it is, is okay, say you're sitting in a room and you're like, oh, wow, it feels comfortable warm here. Mm-hmm. And then you go, oh, man, it got cold. And so you, you flick on your digital thermometer and you measure it and you go, oh, it's 60 degrees. And... Exactly. <laughs> I mean, why, are you going to go to the client and go, did you know that for uh, 30 seconds it was 60 degrees there? Now they, I have actually used one on an investigation where we ask for, you know, say the spirit to lower the temperature, and it did. I mean, it, there was well, 10, 15 of us. That was the... Uh, Arkansas. Okay. And, I mean, it, it proved its point there. I mean, it came in handy, but yeah, that is such, such, such a rare occurrence that you're ever going to get anything like that to happen. And you could do and, almost the same thing with saying light up the EMF detector. Well, or You can do the same thing by just saying drop the temperature, and you can feel the temperature change. Right. I mean, you don't have to have something there telling you precisely, ooh, it went from 65 to 59. You can feel the temperature. It got cooler. Right. And that's another one of these things where, like, if you if you read a lot of ghost books and you read watch a lot of ghost shows, what you know, everyone's always talking about cold spots, cold spots, cold spots. And I can – we had this conversation yesterday off, off recorder. But I can honestly say in all these years of going to all these haunted places and non-haunted places, the, the only time I can legitimately say I know 100% that a real – massive cold spot or cold, cold blast hit me out of nowhere. It's twice. Twice. And all these investigations that we've done. And I probably can't even say that. You know, if I thought real hard, I might come up with a maybe on one. But I did. I, 
I'm at a loss. Well, yeah, and, he, and, and even when it happened, it happens so fast. It comes and goes so fast. The idea that you're going to somehow mm-hmm. run to your gear bag and right. grab out that thermometer, turn it on, and hurry up and get a measuring yeah, is silly. Just, that's just not a piece of equipment that I'm going to carry around with me all night. Well, that's it, and you're not going to have it constantly in your hand because you would rather have an EMF detector and an audio recorder yeah. program or there. A camera or something. You, something, you're, yeah. If you're on an investigation, you're either going to want audible evidence or you're going to want visible visual evidence you're not going to want to go back to a client and say well we were carrying this you know 80 dollar thermometer around and the temperature changed on us Ooh, did you get any photos of it well no <laughs> right <laughs> i didn't have enough hands and there may have actually been some great evps going on too but yeah <laughs> but because i had a, one of my flashlight fetish flashlights <laughs> in one hand and a, and a <laughs> thermometer in the other we have no idea yeah i mean i did get a really good temperature reading and we lit up the entire room Right, so this is this is seventy bucks that you can save and put into an audio recorder that's actually decent right. and not ever look back. Um, okay, so another optional piece. He's drawing a blank. <laughs> well, I'm drawing a blank because there's actually so many. I mean, you get going back to ripping on the shows. Now you get the the REM pods. You know, who cares? If there's vibrations, ooh, there's footsteps, and this machine's going off, and it's the lights flicking. Yeah, and there's and there's several different versions of these vibration detectors. I know. Uh, what's the what was the big popular one that they that call it? Uh, yeah, if there's another name, they call it like the something scope or the gyroscope or something weird like that. Or basically, there there are things you lay down somewhere, and it's, it can feel the vibrations of a footstep approaching and like warn you. Um, but it and also feels is, a car going by. Yeah, uh, some of them, well, the majority of them actually are made so sensitive that they're going to pick you up. Right. I mean, even if you're on the other side of the room, the vibration is going to travel through the floor, and it's going to pick you up. So unless you just set this in a room that nobody goes in or around, they're not really worth having. They're basically, right. in my book, they're useless. Right. Well, and what's interesting is, okay, and we're going to really get into some popular but less known and less used items here. But well, I can, even before we go on to that, touch on one thing. A very good piece of equipment to take on an investigation is a laptop. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it can definitely serve you if you're kind of doing a, a meeting area and you can always run a microphone into it. Um, a lot of laptops do have... Uh, there's actually some pretty quality now night vision webcams that you can put on there. And there's so many free apps that you can download for like uh, doing live audio, like live EVP sessions. Uh, one of the big ones we use, Singapore Theory. And my God, with the way phones are now, cell phones, you can use that for Singapore Theory. Yeah, well, and we've actually uh, was I think it was either my current iPhone or the BlackBerry before it. We actually came here to Ernestine Hazel's, and I I used the audio recorder function on it, and we walked away with a pretty decent EVP that I think is actually on the website Mm -hmm. where where you can listen to it um, on the Ernestine and Hazel's investigation. Um, Same room we're in right now. And another thing is, you know, to plug. Okay, if, if you go to our website, you'll also see that we have a current online series that we've been slowly unveiling called Ghosts of War, and I think we have two episodes up now, and four more that'll be coming within the next six months. And one of the sponsors of that show was uh, Bill Chappelle's, Bill Chappell, Digital Dowsing. DigitalDowsing.com. I don't actually know how to pronounce his last name, sorry Bill. Uh, I know it's either Chappell or Chappelle. I'd say Bill Chappell. Uh, but uh, whichever, Bill. Um, DigitalDowsing.com. <laughs> He actually donated a piece of equipment to us for Ghosts of War, cool, uh, called the, the Paranormal Puck. Now, what's interesting is Bill has an entire... We bought those. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> so Bill, we're having an, an off-mic off discussion about another mm-hmm. piece of... He makes some really good EM pumps, which is another optional piece of gear, but actually can help you out because it, comp- it pumps EMFs like in the air so that, you know, the theory is that then you're sort of supplying the batteries for spirits to do You're do providing things. energy 
for them to do what they do. Sure. And I, I will honestly say that I do like those. Yeah, and, and we got those from digitaldowsing.com. Build, builds great ones. They cycle through various different frequencies, so it's not locked on one frequency, too. Right. Um, but like I say, he, he gave us a paranormal puck, which allowed us to actually connect to our laptop and uh, do things like pick up EMF, static electricity in the air, temperature changes, all these kind of environmental changes in real time that we can watch on our laptop. And it also did have a secondary function, which we did not use, uh, where we actually, uh, what do they call it? It's, it's sort of a digital ITC, they call it. Um, and I'm going to just be upfront on here. And even Bill actually will tell you on the website that that's for entertainment purposes only. Mm -hmm. There are no claims that ITC ever works, but that doesn't stop several ghost shows from uh, exploiting different versions of ITC through uh, video goggles that speak these robotic words. Uh, the Ovilus <laughs> device, which you know can do some great things, but also does ITC too. Um, and, it, and like I say, Bill's first one to tell you know put on his website that right. these are for entertainment purposes only. It kind of to me falls under the same category as like Ghost Box, you know, something along that sign. And here we go with that. I mean, okay. or let's call it by its more popular name, the Radio Shack Hack, right? Because this tends to be the version that most people go with, since you can go buy this nice little cheap radios for twenty five bucks and remove the <laughs> scan button, and um, you have a broken radio. Exactly. It just completely, <laughs> completely scans. It never stops. Yeah. We actually, just to test it, I mean, I, I, I went to Radio Shack. I bought one. I, I, I followed one of the videos on YouTube. I think it was. It had a, like a step-by-step. -step. I made it. I turned it on. I started this endlessly scanning radio. And it doesn't take but, you know, a minute for a reasonably logical person to listen to this right. thing to know you're hearing snatches of radio signals. You you almost can't go anywhere in this country that you're not going to pick up a radio signal. Some, I mean, you're going to pick one up. Yeah, and radios are even known <coughs> for picking up stray odd signals from even as far away as other countries and such like that. But even going back to those Radio Shack hacks, and so, I mean, they're going they can pick up cell phone signals. A lot of them will do that. Uh, Two-way radios. Anything like that can cut in on. They're just, they are not dependable. Not at all. No, and it, it's, it really is a silly thing that we're talking about here. I mean, you're really getting into the realm of people who are so desperate for a thrill at a ghost hunt that anything they can tote along is suddenly a paranormal research well, device. And that's the thing. A lot of groups go in and they think the more gear that they bring in, the better group that makes them, the more professional that they look. I mean, not, we have walked into certain investigations, and they're like, oh, that's all the gear that you have? That's all we need. Yeah. I mean, you can go to our website, and, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah, well, you just don't need it. I mean, if you can go and you can listen to all these EVPs that we've gotten using just basic recorders, using basic EMF detectors and flashlights, and leaving it at that. I mean, okay, here's the deal. And this segues into this conversation. All right, because so if, if we're going in and we're running all these audio recorders and we're running all these video recorders and we're taking constant digital photos, still photos. I think you're going right where I was getting ready to go. And the end is still <coughs> always left with basically the same evidence. If you get evidence of all mine, you know, I mean, of course, you're if you're going to every single case and you're walking away with quote unquote evidence, then you're probably accepting a lot of things that aren't evidence as being evidence. Right. And even going on to that, look at it this way. If you're a new group, if you go into an investigation and you have all this gear, you've got five audio recorders and you set them all over and you do a three-hour investigation, that's 15 hours worth of audio that you're going to have to listen to. Right. you got five different recorders all recording for three hours. I mean, you got 15 hours just on your audio. Not to mention if you went into overload on video. I mean, you may have four video cameras set up, and, you know, there's another 12 hours of video that you're going to have to watch. Trolley. Another trolley. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and, and imagine also if now, if you're one of the people that has short attention span <laughs> syndrome here. Because, I mean, like, again, you know, it's always, people always underestimate just how boring a ghost hunt can be. Well, guess what? You know what the one thing on earth more boring than the actual ghost hunt can be? 
listening to the audio and watching the video of your boring ghost Try sitting in a quiet room with headphones on for five hours listening to nothing. I mean, right. and, and may, it may happen. You may go to an investigation. You have absolutely no audio evidence. You, but you need to sit there and you have to listen to it all because you don't want to miss anything. And it's usually not even. It's, it's probably is what's going to happen. I mean, you're yeah. probably going to get nothing. I mean, and okay. So let's talk about. So I mean, you know, this is one of those sort of things. You know, you do run video cameras clearly all the time. You do take still photos all the time. You do run audio recorders all the time. But typically, when even when we go to a truly haunted place. And we do an extended investigation. We usually, there are certain types of evidence that you tend to get and certain types of evidence that are really rare. The typical gotten evidence are EVPs. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely say that we have probably gotten 100 EVPs for every one strange video or, or photo clip. Oh, my God. At least it got more than that. And... I mean, even into going to the EVPs, you've got to break them down because an EVP is not just an EVP. I mean, there's there's A's, B's, and C's. I mean, you've got to you've got to separate them into three different classes and know what you're looking for. Okay, well, was that an EVP? Was that somebody's stomach growling? Or you know, like an A class EVP is obviously the best. It's going to be legible. You're going to know what's being said. You can hear it. You know, and then you go into your B. You know, there's a certain cadence to the sound you know it's a voice you can't quite pick out all the words but it's there and then right. when you get into the c it's just a bunch of garble yeah it's usually it's even like honestly the c is almost even like it could or maybe even not be an evp right it's, it's there's enough ambiguity there that you just don't know and usually you just you don't use them right you know, there's nothing you can present to a client or even to yourself they typically in our case they get thrown out exactly and they're 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 the and, and they're the most common kind. Oh yeah, <laughs> and and probably even going above that, I mean, are the the knocks. Mm. I mean, you're going to hear knocks and tabs, and that which will segue into this is why when we go into an investigation, we like to do what is called a vigil, and that's just basically sitting in the room, no sound, not asking any questions, just basically getting the feel of the area, just learning the sounds. You know, because all old houses have different creaks and sounds and outside noise. You want to learn that. Yeah. So, I mean, basically where we're going with this is, is 90 times, 99 times out of 100, if you get evidence at all, it's probably audio. Mm-hmm. And every great once in a while, if you're lucky enough to put a camera in the right place, in the right direction, at the right time, you might get some of that. We actually had some pretty good luck while we were shooting Ghosts of War, and that was mainly because we went to really well-known, high-probability haunted places that had gotten a lot of success from a lot of different people. the technique that we used. Uh, Going to where the hot spots were, not really just wandering. I mean, you know, it's funny is, you know, if you go to any place and you say, okay, to the caretaker, the person who lives there or whatever, and you say, well, where does all this stuff happen? They will point, you know, most of it's in there. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how many times you go on these ghost hunts and the people, they'll do something there, but they'll go to, like, all the places where nothing happens, too. Mm-hmm. You know, which is fine, but you should still, if, if someone tells you these three places are where everything happens, well, you probably should have something at those three places right. all night long. <laughs> Man, just, I mean, you got the entire place and the entire night if you wanted to investigate, but you've got to cover the hot spots. Yeah, and I think literally, like right now, if you go watch the Ghosts of War, uh, the two episodes that are there, the first one, the Eldred House, uh, just to use it as an example, there are two still photos on there that were called one of one of the spirit of an Indian and one of a woman standing under a tree. Both of those spots were specifically pointed out yep. by the people at the Eldred <coughs> House where people see things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's no accident that the cameras were there, pointed there. We listened to the client. They told us where things happened. We pointed our cameras at those Man. things. And guess what? We got something. And basically in both instances that those photos were caught, I mean, and it was, I'm going to say, it was luck to draw. I mean, we just got lucky. But... All three members were there. All three members actually had our digital cameras. We were in a line, kind of offset, and we were walking, snapping photos. I mean, 
it wasn't like one person was out there snapping 15 photos. My, the, all three of us were out there, and we probably snapped 300 photos. Yeah, and I think in the end, the, the two best Indian photos were captured on Brandon's camera, yeah. and the uh, the woman photo was on a total different camera. I think it was it was mine, actually. I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, two of the three cameras caught something almost right immediately, yeah. and but, you got more than one person getting it. Right. That's the big but, thing. And like, it, the indication that something might possibly happen was right at the beginning when we were out in that area, my camera completely went dead. The batteries drained. Yeah, and there all was a lot this, of battery, battery drainage. All this happened when I went to change my batteries. They kept snapping photos, and that's when the Indian photo was captured. Yeah, and so should so should ghost bait, as batteries are usually called by mm, ghost hunting group. Yeah, uh, should that be added to our list of necessary gear? Yeah. Lots of batteries. It's, it's <laughs> necessary to definitely have lots of batteries. Right. Which for for video devices, I mean, Sony camcorders, an extra battery may put you out sixty bucks. Yeah. So I mean, that's a that's a definite <laughs> but, consideration. Yeah, and the good thing about most of them though is if you're wanting to use it as stationary, you can plug them in, and they'll just they'll run indefinitely. If it's a mini DV, it'll run for an hour, right. however long your tape is. But if you get a digital, I mean, it'll run for 12 hours. Right. So, okay, so we're here at the Haunted Ernestine and Hazel's, and hopefully you're going to listen to the podcast and maybe hear a straight EVP or something mixed in with all the trolleys and people who have been walking through while we've been talking and giving us the eye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> giving us the hairy eyeball. Uh, and, and, you know, and go read Devil in the Delta and kind of read about a real investigation, you know, and kind of what it's like to deal with some of these clients. And go to the website and check out some of the things we've been talking about, as well as, as the investigation of Ernestine and Hazel's. If you're to learn yeah. more about this place, uh, by the way, a big thank you to Ernestine and Hazel's for letting us do the podcast here. Exactly. And uh, hopefully we covered some of the things. You know, we talked about team size. We talked about gear you need, kind of the optional stuff. And really kind of what you're going to be looking at as far as evidence on an investigation. Yeah. It's all baby steps. Just start out small. Yep. So, okay. So, what's going to be the subject of the next podcast? It's up in the air. <laughs> I would say we're definitely leaning towards another uh, sort of a dissection of a famous case. Um, so, probably That's expect possible. something along the lines of the real exorcist case or maybe uh, the real haunting in Connecticut kind of a case. Yeah. Uh, touch on the Sally House. Sure. The Sally House. Something like that. Um but have fun with your ghost hunting and stay tuned to Paranormal Link Podcast. Keep listening. We will be back.